You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. All right, you got your big gulp, Bracken? Got my big goal. <laughs> Looks like you're ready to go for another recording session. I ran ran short on time. Had a quick call with an athlete prior to this that I didn't anticipate happening. And we had our 11 a.m. hard start. And so I've wrapped up my treadmill session, poured a bunch of Recover Elite into a bottle, and that's my breakfast right now. It's 11, 11 right now, so I'd say it's a soft start. We logged on at 11. I did. Do you like my, uh, like my bubblegum pink shirt I'm wearing today for you? Yeah, this is one of those colorblind days where you got burgundy over pink with a red hat. <laughs> that's just, you know, that's funny. You can tell that because me, it's all the same shit. <laughs> I like, I like all the shades in this color. Today's not about me, Kirk. Well, it kind of is. Cause... About my shame. Yeah, well, yeah. It's First about all, your shame. Yep. So you, you, you ran your 5K. To recap for people who aren't regulars, 16 days after my second, uh, so, sorry, I had my second knee surgery but I hadn't run in seven months. So on my 16th run back, I did a 5K time trial. Kirk has been out five months with a, a broken bone in his foot. On his 16th run back, he decided to do a 5K so that he could beat me and see where he stacked up against me. And we put out a post, a poll in our, in our Instagram story. And on the first day of checking, we had 109 responses Eight of them guessed that your time would be slower than mine. <laughs> <laughs> they knew it was coming. Over 90% of our followers had no doubt at all that you'd be faster. You know, but if you re- reverse the role and I was the one who time trialed first and then you had something to shoot for and a little more incentive along the way, I think the result would have been different. I looked back on that day. Mm-hmm. I left maybe 15 to 20 seconds out there. I left five at most. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that I'm still, still 25 seconds behind you on a, that perfect day that day. So you smoked me. I'll give you credit. 1657, 1654. 1654.9 was the official, official result. But by the time I stopped my watch, like a knucklehead, I went one one hundredth of a mile further. Hmm. So it might've been 1652 or three. But 1654 is what the watch said. I stopped it at 3.11. That's what it is. That's my precise high school PR from cross country. Oh, it is? 1654. Well, well, then I could uh, hang with an 18-year-old out on the cross course, I guess, right now. I was 17. 17. You could hang out with a 17-year-old. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what. I'll t- I'd hang out with 17-year-old Brack, and I feel like he'd be a real trip. That was a good time. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what. I, 16 runs back. It's no world record. You know, I, I time trialed in April um, when I didn't think my fitness was great, but it was good. It, and I was 15.58. So I'm roughly 56 seconds slower than that. And for that to be a starting point, I've been running two or three days a week. I've only run three days a week for two weeks. So it'd be 16.56, man. Like, how do I complain? Or 54? How do I complain about that? You don't. But I will tell you, and it's something you mentioned, 
um, a couple times in, in talking about your comeback is the fighting for each stride was mm-hmm. the hardest it felt to get my body to move. I was so inefficient the last two miles once any sort of fatigue set in that it was like, thank God my body has muscle memory and knows somewhat how to run because it felt like I had no control over it and my stride shortened up and I was clunky and every stride was just like work, not flow. And that's how I know I haven't done any sort of real fitness building work yet. So um, it was just an interesting feeling. And and I don't know if you know this about my time trialing, but I either I'm like a metronome, I'm perfectly even splits, or I'll negative split almost everything. And I positive split this one. This is the first time trial that I positive split. It was wow. subtle. It was subtle. It was like 525, 527, 531 kick home. But... Um, I could not do anything about it. My fitness could not, I couldn't choose to stay. I, it was winning and I was slowly dying. So, um, no, you know, we talk about our stay power being, you know, the mm-hmm. first thing to go and we can get our speed back or we can get, uh, time on feet back, but that stay power, that threshold power for me is, is going to need some work. And I was actually curious what your thought is on this. I wanted to save for the podcast, to ask you my first question to you, and I want your take on this. So. When I time trial back in April and ran 15.58, my average heart rate was 181 for a 5K, which I think is extremely high. Yeah. Same effort level. I really tried hard knowing I had to beat you. And my average heart rate for this time trial was 173. Yeah. Which is eight beats a minute slower, but I'm not in nearly as good of shape, right? So how do you make sense of the, those markers in your brain? Our fitness is a rev limiter. It must have. We, I, I like to say you're only as tough as your fitness allows you to be. Because no matter how tough you are or how hard you try, if you're not in shape enough to work hard the entire time, you can't keep your heart rate as high as if like you can't access your upper echelon of heart rate if you don't have the fitness to sustain the effort. It must have been what happened, but it was just I was that was the biggest note I made between the two time trials. Like, wow, like that has to be directly related to my absence of the fitness I had this spring. Inability to keep my heart rate up because when my heart rate got that high, it won and I would have had to slow down. So it's very interesting. It is. Yeah. I'm impressed with you though. And and you're right that that fighting for each stride, no efficiency of stride. Everything is a little clunky and feels slower than it should be. And you have to think, all right, drive my arm, drive my knee, bring my leg. The stuff that never crosses your mind when you're fit. It's Mm -hmm. constant reminders when you're unfit. And I, and I ran in the Hoka Carbon X for the first time. I wore them around and said, yeah, I think this is a safe shoe. And it was a good call. But those are really firm. They have that firm Bam. carbon plate. You should have heard. It sounded like I was an elephant running down the sidewalk. Because really? they were so loud and I was so heavy on my feet. Interesting. Um, it was like, man, Kirk, you need some work. But that's why we got, you know, that's where I'm at. So, um, And I got to say, so by the way, two winners happened from the time trial guessing. Okay. So uh, I had two athletes, two people what- guessed. We didn't announce, by the way. No, we didn't what, announce. What would happen with a winner? We just no. said predict the time. No, I said I give away a free month of coaching. But, but I didn't know that. when we In the post, we didn't say that. I thought we did. Anyways. I was unaware of this. Two people guessed 1653 and two people guessed 1655. Nobody guessed 1654. But my watch said 1654.9. So I had to round up to 1655 for the winner. So I'm sorry, you two who are 1653. Although I went the one tenth hundredth further, which might have made the 1653 people win, but it's irrelevant. So the winners were Mikhail Jarillo, 
who is a guest on our podcast recently, and then a current athlete of mine, Tyler, uh, Tyler uh, Mobzessen. So uh, I just uh, ran my way out of one month's payment for coaching, Bracken. <laughs> and you got to honor it. And I got to honor it. So Tyler, good man. And Mick, I don't know if you need my help, brother, but it's all yours if you want it. <laughs> That's, That's it. Funny. That's not the first time this has happened. I had I had an athlete of mine early on um, with one of the reviews we picked one a free month of coaching. I thought, man, it's one thing to give away a month. It's another thing to take away a bit of your paycheck. <laughs> well, I just took a bit, a bit away from my paycheck. Yeah, the funny. first time we actually did a um, a free month of coaching for writing a review for us, uh, the random was was Jess, my girlfriend. <laughs> she said I could, you know, do it again. Um, you got a little news, don't you? Well, it's funny. You're talking about feeling like a noob again and feeling unfit and awkward. I purchased a pair of cross-country skate skis. Finally. Boots, poles, the whole shebang. And I took it out Saturday morning, got there at 6 a.m. when the, the park opens. It's groomed trails. And I wanted to be the first person there so I could get my growing pains out of the way in the dark, away from prying eyes. You didn't get them all out of the way, Bracken. I left and came home so broken down mentally. I felt like a giant pile of turds. It's tough, isn't it? It's Nobody warned you for how humbling that first session was going to be, did they? I watched videos on YouTube of how to do this and different drills you should do. And I got out there and I'm like, I am an athlete. All right. It's something I pride myself on. I can pick up anything and be adequate at it. it I was so awful. Two guys showed up right as I got there, just checking out the conditions and then went to leave. And I just asked them, Hey guys, does it matter which foot I put the ski on? <laughs> and then just <laughs> they looked identical and there wasn't any marking on my skis. And I never <laughs> thought to think, is there a left and a right? And the guys, and I don't know if they're messing with me or not. They said, no, for skate skiing, it doesn't matter. I thought, well, that sounds weird. So I put them on and I couldn't get them on because I'd never tried them on before. Well, and then once you get once you get one on, then you're slipping on that ski while you try to put the other one on. So I get them both on and I go to start skating right away and I can't do it. I'm like, they were messing with me. They don't go on just random feet. I am on the wrong feet. That's why I can't move. Took them off, switched sides and realized, nope, I'm just not any, I don't have any skill for this. So I started doing drills. Like I put one ski in the uh, the classic track. So it's down in the track there. And then just do push off skating with the uh, with the opposite one. And I'm all right, all right, I'm pushing off. All right, I'm gliding forward. I switch to the other side. I'm pushing off. Like my knees are creaking and cracking. And I realize this is going to be good for my knees, both surgery, different planes of movement. All right, I got this. I step onto it. I go and I'm just flailing like a baby giraffe all over the place. It's like a, when a deer gets caught on the ice and its legs are all sprawled out. It's oh. that feeling. And then people showed up and I'm still doing this. And I made a terrible mistake. I wore what I would wear winter running, but one layer extra. So I had my $130 pair of craft tights on and my $200 Solomon. You should have worn sweatpants and a sweatshirt and not looked the part bracket. Exactly. And I realized that the first person came up to me and they just glided past and they slowed. They didn't say anything. They just looked at me with this quizzical look, trying to figure out what's going on. My legs look like I'm in shape. My upper body looks like I'm in shape. I'm wearing everything that a really good fit skier would wear. And I am, I just look like a fool. And everyone came by and looked at, I should have worn dirty ripped sweatpants 
and and so like some paint-filled sweatshirt and then they'd be like oh look at him it's fine that homeless man who's trying to learn to ski that's sweet and instead they're like who is this prima donna fool i feel partially guilty because i should have warned you how difficult your first session is when you've oh. never done it before second of all I picked up cross-country skiing last year, guys, and I actually am pretty good at it. I, I think I might compete this winter if we, they allow us. It's very technique-driven, but the first time I went in all my gear, my run gear, my high-end stuff, and I had the same experience. I was so embarrassed that I wore stuff I would never wear working out to my next like four skate sessions so nobody would look at me and have expectations because eyes were on me and I was on my ass constantly. Now, I did not fall. But I had you weren't trying hard enough if you didn't fall. trying hard, but I had probably two or three dozen so close hopping on one leg, like windmilling everywhere, trying not to fall. And I should have just fallen. Were you able to use your fitness at all at any point in your zero, first? zero amounts of fitness? Did you did were you able to string together any steady amounts of skiing? We don't have snow right now, so they make snow there, but they only have a seven tenths of a mile loop set up. And so of the seven tenths, seven tenths of a seven tenths of a mile loop. Seven. Yeah. So it's just a loop, but it's an uphill and a downhill and a flat at the base. So the base is one third of it. So you're either going uphill, which I can't do, or you're going downhill, which anyone can do as long as you stay upright. And then the flat, which was my only time to practice. Mm. And I couldn't go reverse direction because people were showing up. So out of the entire time there, I'd spend one third of the time actually practicing and then one third just like trudging uphill. I'd eventually just put my skis in the classic tracks and just pull myself uphill. <laughs> it was it was a mess. So no, I did. I got nothing out of it other than sore elbows and obliques <laughs> from pulling too hard. I'm sure your arms got, I'm sure your arms went first because you weren't using your legs appropriately. Yeah. And I have the skate ski poles. So they're too high to do classic Nordic so it's pulling weird. It was just, it was a mess, Kirk. And I got home and I told Lisa, I really, the ego in me wants to just learn this myself, but I should just go take one lesson. I should really take a lesson or have someone that knows how to do it. Show me one, just for like 10 minutes and tell me these are the things you must do. Here's the thing. So I have not taken lessons and then I know we need to get into our topic of the day, but um, you're an athlete and I believe. I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> It makes sense. Once it clicks, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And you need to be humbled the first two, three, four times out. And by the end of your second session, you're going to start moving somehow okay. And you'll go back to start session number three, and you'll fumble for 10 minutes, and then it'll click sooner. And session number four, the same. And then by five or six, you'll get out of the parking lot, you'll click into your skis, and suddenly you'll get right into rhythm, and it will start to make sense. And if I know anything about you, it will work. I do think that you can shortcut the process by getting some help, but I truly also believe from my experience, it's something you have to feel out. Somebody can tell you what to do. My girlfriend, Jess, got quick lessons. It didn't matter. She couldn't feel the movement. You're an athlete. You'll be able to feel the movement. You just got to, you just got to go out there and do it again. Yeah. And you know, I'm a proponent of putting yourself in these situations, you know, having to create new pathways in your brain and being a sub beginner again and feeling like a fool and then learning a process that, that spurs growth. But I have not been this low since ninth grade algebra. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm being serious about that. This is the thing that I am worst at since I was 13 or 14 years old. I have not felt this bad at anything ever in my life physically. It's so humbling. <laughs> that means this is going to be really good for you. And I do feel a little guilty because I feel like I pushed you towards these things. So because they were so wonderful. They were so wonderful last winter. 
I, I thought I was going to hit the ground just gliding, just mm -hmm. skate, 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 sk 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 flying over the ground. What you need, and then let's move on, is um, if you can get some fresh powder that isn't completely just rugged. It was drizzling as well. Yeah, and so the snow, the snow quality when you're cross-country skiing is absolutely everything for speed, for control, how you move your legs and control your core. And so if you can get like some fresh powder bracket on a day it's snowing, stop what you're doing and go out there and you're going to be able to feel the movement every time. So wait for that day and then go hit it and you're going to feel a lot better about it. Okay. Yeah. So why don't you tell them about our topic of the day, Brad? Well, this is what I introed last week because <laughs> it was just on my mind. I'm passionate about this, Kirk. And it was reaffirmed during that skate session, which is we have to be good about addressing our weaknesses. We've talked about addressing our weaknesses in the past, but one of the biggest confusions I get with athletes is actually how to identify weaknesses. When you get done with a race and you just think, oh, I was just tiring, I was exhausted, or you're done with a workout and be like, well, that sucked. And actually identifying what pieces am I actually bad at compared to average at compared to good at. And then that springboards into address your weaknesses. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, it can be a little redundant or a little overplayed, like, ah, oh, work on your weaknesses in the off season and um, focus on the things you're not good at. So they are now strengths. And it is a little bit, you know, fluffy and cliche. And we, we've touched on it a little bit in some of our episodes. We've actually never told you how to identify your weaknesses and then maybe what exactly to do about them. And it's just super topical right now going into the off season, as we want to call it. Um, so we thought we'd devote, you know, a solid 45 minutes towards actually your true weaknesses. And step one is identifying them, isn't it, Bracken? It is. I don't know how you do it, but I have three questions that I always pose to myself or to athletes every time they're the same three. And how do I start identifying your weaknesses? Do you have do you have stuff that you do? Um, yes, but you labeled them off before we started recording really nicely. And I think okay. you should just go with those three to start. All right. So the first thing I do, the first question I ask people, and people are going to be smirking, anyone who's ever chatted with me, because I'm redundant about this, but if the race that your your next race or your goal race, if it were tomorrow, what would scare you? What would you be worried about if your A race was suddenly tomorrow? Mm -hmm. you, it was like a bad dream. You woke up like, all right, 24 hours till race time. You go, oh, shoot, I'm not ready for blank. And that's the start of your weakness list right there. The first way to identify. Yes. That's number one. Yeah. Well, what would, you, what would yours be? Let's talk about it right now. What would yours be? We'll dump into specifics, but I'm curious. I have no anaerobic capacity right now. <laughs> that stain power we talked about, your anaerobic threshold, that is, it is very low for me right now. And also my broken running is, is, has been a struggle for a few years. My compromised running is still kind of a strength of mine where I can run to a high potential of my maximum pace after carries or hills or whatever. But my broken running is a little bit different, and that is changing terrains or getting disrupted from flow. I used to be a very good broken runner, and I've lost that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so anything that throws me off rhythm is a gas tank dagger right now. That makes sense. My grip has not been accessed in a, probably a year. So if I had a race tomorrow, I'd be scared. I would be very frightened that I could not maintain the pace in the first mile or two to even get to the, the race. I would be worried that every time my running got disrupted, it would cost me too much to get back up to speed. And then I'd be worried that I would be having to just cling for my life through the grip obstacles rather than flowing through. So there, you just identified three big weaknesses. Three big ones right now. It was that yeah. easy. Yep. What about you? Oh, my lactate threshold sucks right now. Yep. <laughs> I, uh, if you talk, I, 
I you go talk race fitness is what is is what we really need. And I have zero race fitness, which is stay power. I felt that normally I'm in control of my effort in this 5k time trail was slowly winning. I was not slowly winning. Um, it would be that. And then, um, and that's all related to a number of things. That's actually my, just my one right now. And my climbing is, is slow. I think mm-hmm. I expressed that too in off uh, mic conversations, but I need to lose about 10 pounds. I'm about 10 pounds up from real fighting weight. I need to get rid of this booty and these man thighs that I've somehow gained. So yeah, um, that's all part of it. But that's it. Yeah. So, which is basically the process. I just need to follow the process. Exactly. So yep. those are, that's the low hanging fruit. The yep. things that are just viscerally frightening to you. You think races tomorrow and you pucker up and you think, oh, this is the problem. Boom. That's easy. That's easy to identify. Yep. Second thing that I always ask people is, during a race, what once the race starts and you've identified the people that you are attempting to beat, that, that's your crowd, your crowd appears, where do they pull away from you? Where do you lose time compared to the people that you're comparing yourself to? So that doesn't mean watching the Spartan rewind and saying, oh man, Atkins just would put so much time on me on a, a bucket carry, or Robert Killian would put so much time on me in Tahoe on that climb to the top. It's it's not about choose the best in the world if you're not there. It's your circle of peers, the people that you should be competing against. Where would they pull away and put time on you? Mm-hmm. I really like that. That's your second line of weaknesses. Yeah, yeah, and, and that should. And you're right. That should, that should go with your race experience from the previous season or recent races. You know, the races ebb and flow. I think even on the top end, people are passing and then getting passed, and it's a it's a dancing match back and forth. But um, that's a good starting point because if you don't pick the spots where you're leaking time, then you're going to continue to do so. And if those, you know, seconds start to matter, the more and more competitive you get. So I think that's a really good way to look at it. So let's just real quick, and we're going to give takeaways to this, but now let's just talk it real quick. Yeah. Where do you, where do you lose just so people can start thinking the right way? Where do you lose time in races? Well, I would consider myself to be your peer. We are pretty equal in a lot of areas of fitness. And in the last two races we ran together, you put significant time on me on the bucket, on the bucket carry. I was always considering myself to be one of the better bucket carriers out there. I'd take time on, I felt everyone. And then suddenly that wasn't a strength anymore. And not only was it not a strength, I was actually losing time. And that's not something I would have been frightened about, about a race. I wouldn't think about the race and be like, oh no, there's a bucket coming. But after the race, it was like, oh man, Kirk put like eight or nine seconds on me in that bucket. Mm-hmm. And then I had to overwork to even try to catch back up. So that's one of them. And then I've started realizing that I leak time on crawls and over over any sort of wall. It's, it's started to take too much out of me and I've started to lose time there, which is not something I'd ever be worried about before a race. And so mm-hmm. I think it's why it's important to reframe the question, not just what worries you, but then what also loses time. A wall's not scary to me. I'm not going to cramp up on a wall. I'm not going to fail a wall, but I'll lose a second and a half on every wall. And suddenly that's a problem. Yeah. But with the wall, I have a strong philosophy. And like, if you look at the Hobie call technique where he puts his chest on the wall and rolls over it, is that the fastest way to get over a wall? Nope. But is it the least amount of energy expenditure? Yep. And he can get right back into his rhythm running where maybe if you try to hop over it, put your feet on it and use the upper body more, it can compromise your running after it's a net negative. So there's like you know. using that that technique. Yeah. Okay, I well, there you go. taking something out of me. I, that I used to work a lot of muscle ups and a lot of pull up work and a lot of like leaping in the middle of an interval. I used to have a wall that I'd use. I stopped doing all that stuff and it started taxing me too much to get over. And then and so I'd go into it slower and then I'd lose more time and then it would compound. So again, looking back to a race identifies that for me. 
What about you? What, what do you what are you not afraid of, but you find losing time in races? Junkie running. There's a philosophy sort of like when you're in the trash and you're in the mud up to your shins and it, you, you shouldn't really push that hard because you don't see that much benefit to pushing hard. It's a lot more work for your engine without gaining that much in time. But when we start running through trashy stuff, I think I let it win a little too much. And I think it over revs me. I think I'm a little heavier runner, I would say. And so that stuff seems to suck the life out of me more than the clean running. So actually putting myself, I'm, I'm looking forward to snow here because we still have brown. It's December, whatever, 21st mm-hmm. today. So I just need some junky running. I lose uh, the trashier the footing. It seems like I lose more percentage of energy compared to others. Um, so that's that's the one thing for me. I'll lose time almost always. In Jacksonville early this year, you didn't race there, but it was super, we had some really muddy sections. And that's where guys went right by me. Johnny Luna Lima flew by me in that. I think even at Aaron Newell go by me in that stuff. And and so that's an area for me. Yeah. Yeah. And mine is in between grade hills and always has been. Yeah, that for me too. Flats, I can run really well or pretty well, I should say. Technical, I can run pretty well. If it's steep, I can match people that blow me away from that 10 to 20% grade, that 10 to 15% grade in particular. I just, I, I don't know what's wrong. It's like a sieve for me. I, I just leak all this time on that terrain. This morning, I was watching the 2016 Asheville race, the rewind. Mm, it's a good, that's a good race. Yeah. And, and I had forgotten about this race a little bit, but two miles in, we get to the spear throw and I couple feet ahead of Atkins and four miles in, we get to bucket carry and I'm a couple feet ahead of him. And he passes me on the down carry. And as soon as we dropped it off, I, I passed him on the next uphill. So I was fighting him on uphills. And then we get to a sandbag carry and I'm nowhere to be seen. And what they didn't show in the footage was that there was about a mile, mile and a half stretch of 10 to 15% grade fire road running. And he just dropped me like a bad habit. And it just re it just reaffirmed. I haven't thought about that for a while because I haven't raced a hilly race, but I just leak time on mid-grade hills. Mm-hmm. Me too. That's the mid-distance in us, unfortunately, I think. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh-huh. And then what's your third? You had three things that you were saying um, as far as how to identify weaknesses. So number one, number one was, just to recap, what was that? If the race was tomorrow, what would frighten you? What would you be concerned about having to do? Okay. Number two, we just talked about, about where in races do you find that you were losing time or getting past? Mm-hmm. And then the third? The third is very physical. What is just really obnoxiously tiring for you to do? And what leaves you sore in ways that doesn't make sense? And I think that those those can be trickier to identify because everything's tiring and getting sore is not a good metric of having completed good work. Yep. But a lot of times our weaknesses manifest in fatigue and in soreness. Could you give an example of something like that would that would happen? Towards the end of races and interval work or tempo runs or long runs, my hamstring insertion point at my butt on my right side always starts announcing itself. It is there's either a weakness there or it's pulling differently than my left leg is. Hmm. And and that that contributes to my fatigue. When that starts happening, I I'm just not as able to drive hard. Um, another thing is that my soleus gets abnormally trashed after races sometimes and my inside of my quads get really really sore off certain grade descending not like black diamond ski slope descending but like 10 percent smooth runnable descents and other people i talk to don't have that same level of destruction after pieces like that so it starts to point to imbalances in stride in muscle imbalances or 
types of actual running that I'm not running as much as others. Maybe I'm just not getting that stress enough and that's why it's destroying me. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. What about you? My lower back. Yeah. It's my lower back. I got, uh, I got a bulge disc in my lower back. Um, and sometimes when I'm through fatigue, especially in mountain races or something like I can have a great bucket carry, but on a day where my back is having a bad day, I'm useless with it. Uh, it's like knives, you know, and part of that needs to be worked on so I can prevent that. I can roll the dice. Some days I'm out there and it feels great. And then some days it doesn't. So that would be one area in which I need to put some time in because I have actually, speaking of the bucket carry, I've stolen races on the bucket and sandbag carry. I really have, but I've also lost them there when I've had a bad back day. So I got to work on, got to work on that. That's the pain side or the soreness side. But then from the, what just feels abnormally difficult for me. Over the years, more and more functional fitness has started to fail me. Getting over walls is starting to become fatiguing. Getting through barbed wire is more fatiguing than it used to be. In stadium races, the uh, the ram burpees, the hand release push-ups, even the, the core ab walk we have to do, things like that. Mm-hmm. In high rocks, uh, walking lunges, things that I used to feel were more of a strength are now taxing me more than they should. And so that highlights an immediate weakness in what I'm doing in training. Yeah, but if you look at your training, I mean, I know it pretty well. Like you used to do that stuff almost daily and now you do it rarely if ever in the last period of your training. So like, it makes sense. You just need to get back to your roots, yeah. It does, but it's important for me to feel that and put it down on paper because otherwise I just keep not doing it in my training because the thought was always, oh, I win stadiums because I'm so efficient at getting in and out of obstacles and blasting through them and getting right back to high speed running and it doesn't take much out of me. So that's my strength. And it's cemented on my in my brain as the strength column. But if you don't reassess constantly, you forget that strength column can move into neutral column, which can then slip over into weakness column. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the really successful athletes stay on top of where their attributes lie and in which column. Yep. So if you're at home, you know, you really should. You should get out a piece of paper and a pen. If you got a multicolored pen, that's preferred. And you list out the, the exact same things that Bracken just outlined, I think are really good. And I have one thing I'd add to that. But if the race were tomorrow, what would I be afraid of? And write down your list. Where do I get past in races? And then any sort of over-damaging work uh, that you've noted in your training. And then the fourth thing I would just add is what do you dread or avoid doing? Mm. Because we all we all seem to gravitate towards what we're good at in our tendencies, and and we seem to avoid the things that we're not that great at, or we, which means typically we don't enjoy them. And it's kind of a bummer to say, hey, now I want you to train the things you don't like. Like that sucks. But I've guided a lot of athletes through this bracket, and I'm sure you have too. That suddenly three weeks in, where they suck it up and start training the things they don't enjoy doing, it becomes way less cumbersome. And then once that happens, it opens up the door for fitness gains and improvement at that skill. So, um, I would just say like, what do I avoid or what do I hate training? And I would somehow force that into my training plan on a regular basis. So, so make columns for those four things. Holding something up to the screen right now for you, Kirk. I don't know if you can read that. I thought you were just ignoring me while I was talking. Uh, it's not focusing on it. I can't. What is that? Well, okay. So Bracken's showing me this list on his phone with little tabs and, and circles. What are those? What is it? The title is things I do wrong. And this is a list you put together? Yeah. And one of them is things I avoid working on that I know I need to work on. So historically, here's what I've avoided. And here's my list. So I didn't even have that in my 
these this the fourth thing we should talk about is what do we typically historically avoid but just since surgery going back through i made my list of what have i been avoiding could you tell the people are you comfortable sharing your list core (laughs) (laughs) yeah consistent strength work okay downhills yep grip yep doubles as in carries uh no as in oh two a day two two days where i get something good in and it's like all right i'm good for the day rather than but i still have to round it out social media to be better at social media yep and procrastination you got a lot of knowledge to spread to the world bracken you got to spread it beyond this podcast so if you take a look at this list kirk this Mm -hmm. is this is interesting i'm glad you brought that up because this isn't where i was going with it but let's look back on the things i talked about what am i afraid of if there was a race tomorrow well you said like transitional running walls and yeah broken running Mm -hmm. grip strength and then not being able to hang in the first couple miles well we have strength core and grip on here all things you avoid have avoided and lactate threshold is something that of course we don't have because we're coming off of months away so that that's just a that should come. Yep. places i lose time in races what did i say well you said those gradual uphills gradual uphills mm-hmm. um, which is actually not on here but that's because i don't avoid working on them i'm just not that good at them said that i lose time now on bucket carries Yep. And that uh, the transitions, that the things are taking too much time out of me. So we have strength, core, grip. All of it. Yeah. And then things that leave me too sore, we have downhills. And that's something that I've avoided working on enough. And what else did I say leaves me too? My soleus and things like that. So that would actually be downhill and flat ground speed work. So the only thing I haven't avoided on here is speed work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So well, it's interesting that the things I avoid probably wipe out the other three columns <laughs> i could have just stuck to that yeah the thing it could have it could have but i mean the things we avoid we it's not no surprise that those are probably the things that could use the most improving so like it, it they're parallels you know yeah. I, I think so so what you need to do is you need to make your list bracken already did it he's not he's practicing what he preaches he's a student i'm surprised you didn't bring up this talking point i'd forgot about that list yeah well no, no, you should not forget <laughs> you don't want to forget about that list bragging i made it like six days ago kirk that's an eternity ago that's a long time that's a long time ago so write your list out okay to all those those four things i guess that we mentioned and the beautiful thing is is now you're not really sacrificing much by working your weaknesses because you have time and the things you're strong at you can layer back in or keep a low number of sessions in to maintain most of what you're already pretty good at so the question is, is how does somebody like build or change their training based on this list that they come up with? Like, where do you start? Like, how many days a week do I work my weaknesses? How do I fit them in? Do I completely, if I suck at climbing or my threshold running is bad, do I completely let go of speed work and completely not do flat stuff and just go up, up, up and do threshold? Like, how do you, how do you work those puzzle pieces then once you know or have identified your weaknesses? Well, I divide them into fitness and skill. Those are the two columns I make afterwards. And so core, grip, uh, carries, technical running, things like that I'd mark down in skill. Even though core is not a skill, I wouldn't consider it an endurance-based fitness. And then I put things like 10% incline running and um, fast downhill running and not being able to have the actual lactate threshold high enough to hang comfortably for the first two miles. I put that in fitness and the skill we can work all the time. 
It can yep. be done as finishers. It can be done as those buy-ins to use that CrossFit terminology. We could do it um, incorporated into your strength work. You could do it at the, I mean, really anytime you want. You can do whole strength blocks that focus around functional fitness and core work. And then the, uh, the fitness side, we share the same belief that fitness is fitness, engine is engine, system is system, regardless of how you're working it. So right now I'm doing all of my work. I would say 80% of my work is done at somewhere between six and 15% incline. Mm. So I can still do speed work. I can still do threshold work. I can still do long runs, but it's done in the specific range that my weakness is. And I'm not going to come out of that unable to run flat. I'm going to come out of there with my weakness really shored up. And now I can translate it to the flats anytime I want. So the more fitness based it is, the more global that that term is and the more you can work on it globally. The more skill-based it is, the more specific you have to work and you can you can fit that in as needed. Do you, do you think that, you know, we kind of talked about like periodizing seasons and we're in our base phase and all that, so short intervals and then maybe some threshold work and stuff, but we're not doing anything too, too productive in like the peak fitness sense. Mm-hmm. But what if, like, what if you're, you know, your weakness is, oh, I'm really great on all these technical courses and hill courses, but I'm fat and, you know, fast and flat. I suck on. Does that mean your base phase should include, I'm just like playing a little bit of devil's advocate to our own preach here. What do you tell that person um, on the opposite end of the coin, just thinking fitness and periodization and base phase, which we're trying to tell you right now, like this is the time to work your weaknesses is the accept is the exception speed, flat speed, or is it not? I don't think so. Well, first of all, you could treat it as an exception and then just go to, through two cycles instead of one. Mm. Like you could go through an entire mini periodized season and be done with it by February yeah. and then reset and do it again and be ready by May. So you could go through two cycles and really improve your speed, but you can also break it down into components of skill. And you can say, all right, I'm doing my typical base phase, but I'm doing hill bounding, hill sprints. I am doing plyometrics. I'm doing 40 meter burst starts running and fast strides and 200s to end my my threshold days where you're having pieces of speed building. You're going to shore up your mechanics. You're going to increase your leg turnover. You're going to shorten your ground contact time, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then in the next stage, instead of strides, you're adding in 200s and 300s certain days, but you're not doing them until exhaustion. You're doing them as skill work. Mm-hmm. So you can really, really work on that end of the spectrum without compromising your build. That's my take on it. I really like that. Working the foundational components to, let's say, your speed work, if speed is indeed lacking, yeah. and and layering that in like in a smart manner. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so what I think with this, again, if you've already listed them out, you have a pretty clear picture. Uh, then, then I think you want to like prioritize them, right? You want to mm-hmm. make your list, and then you want to make your list again. Just get it all on paper. Like these are the things, and then list out like your one through whatever, however you have one through three, one through 10, whatever this is on your list and say, okay, this is where I'm going to need the most help or make up the most time or be the most So then prioritize them. Right. Yeah. And, and then whatever's on the top of your list is in your program every week, no matter what, maybe twice a week, like number one, for example, let's say you, you know, you're, you feel like you could improve in the six to 20% climbing range. Well, maybe all of your Tuesday quality work is in that range right now. And maybe a, a midweek long run or a Saturday long run, you're spending some time in that zone, even if it's not in like fast work, it's, it's being put in there. Mm-hmm. And so then, and the skills, I think, like you had mentioned, like if this is a skill-based thing, you can just tack that under your strength days. You can throw those into your gym days, no problem. Add those all in right away. Mm-hmm. I guess we're talking more fitness-based here. 
And so your number one gets thrown in once, maybe twice a week for a long period of time. Your number two gets filtered in um, at some point as well, if it's not every week, every 10 days. And then your number three maybe make sure it gets in every once every two weeks if it's if it's possible. And then you rework your plan that way. The twice a week for your biggest weakness, maybe once a week for your second biggest weakness and once every other week for your third biggest weakness and at least lay foundation in all of them. That's how I would approach it. Yeah. And then the only other way to go about that is the exact opposite, which is to say I'm going all in and I'm doing a specific block for it. Like like the six to 20% block and you just yep. hammer. And you just say I'm hammering it. And I don't know if there's a right or wrong way. It would probably depend on the skill. Like you couldn't do that for downhill running. Nope. You could do it for uphill running. You can't do it for top end speed, but you could do it for endurance. Um, and, and there there are little tips and tricks you can do along the way. Uh, one of the things that people always talk about in the off season, not always, but the coaches have used for decades um, are accelerations and pickups in the middle of easy and long runs to just stay in touch with a little bit of anaerobic dabbling in there and a little bit of, of, of turnover and then keeping your form good afterwards. And so throughout a long run, you might have you might be scheduled to do 15, 30 second pickups scattered throughout there. Mm-hmm. So you can do something like that. But if your weakness is carries, you can do that with a carry. You can have a, a 800 meter loop or a mile loop that you're going to do your long run on. And every 800 meters or mile, you pick up your carry and you run hard with it for 30 seconds and drop it. And then you continue on casually aerobically. You can do it with downhills. You do 10 to 30 second pickups eight times during a long run. And you just hammer that downhill smooth, fast, strong, good form. And that's skill work. You can do things like that throughout your week where you're inserting the skill into your normal fitness build. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Where, where do you think, if you're like listing all the possible weaknesses, yeah, it could be anything, skill work or fitness wise, like where do people stand to put the most time in, regardless as to who you are? Like, we always can all get better at something, right? But then there's sort of like rules of thumb, like, hey, if you can climb, like you're going to be 90% of the way there for any race there. Do you have any, like somebody sitting there scratching their head being like, I don't even know where to start is what I'm kind of getting at. Like, I don't even know what I'm good or not good at necessarily compared to others because I haven't raced before or I don't have enough experience or I was so new two seasons ago and I've been training but not racing. So I'm scratching my head a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. There's going to be a camp there where I don't know if they can list them out as concisely as we can. Like, where would you start would be the most beneficial to translating to a race? I'm going to cheat. I'm going to say then you start with time trials. Okay. It's not cheating. You start with two different running metrics, something shorter and something more stamina-based. You do a functional fitness test or two. You do an uphill, t- yeah, I do two uphill tests. I do a 60-minute and a 15-minute uphill test. And I'd start to look at all those things and say, all right, where do I, on paper, where do I stack up? And then... If you're talking specifically OCR, I would also add in one simulator because there's a lot of people who can do all of them in a vacuum and can't combine it. And by the end of that, you have felt every skill set you're supposed to have. And now you can start making your list. Time trials and simulators. Yeah. But in general, I mean, I just keep coming back to the capacities, anaerobic capacity, aerobic capacity, and then functional fitness work capacity raising those three things up higher. In some format, everyone has to be able to run for a long time with minimal effort, for a shorter time at a high level of effort, and put out a lot of good force moving your body through space without taking a huge hit to your endurance. No, I agree with that. Broad strokes, but that's all it is when you break it down. 
Exactly. No, that those weren't cheap answers. Those are good answers. I, I'm just saying your threshold running is all that, all that really matters. You're going to see the biggest bang for your buck in just improving how fast yeah. and efficiently you cover ground. And so putting in tempo runs, putting in long intervals, putting in things like that to just improve your top end capacity is super important. Um, and then there's the one thing that I would say as far as skill goes, uh, you have a lot of, you know, if you have traditional track or cross country backgrounds, if you're a multi-sport athlete background, um, everybody gets into running or if they have been running in a traditional sense, mostly on flat terrain. And so uh, going up, you can never err on the side of, of too much vert and vert translates to flat. So I know we've beat a dead horse with that over, over this last year, but um, putting that in, if you don't know where to start, like work on climbing, because it will only help you in the mountains and it will only help you on the flats as well. And then working those longer grindy things, I think as far as fitness goes, as far as skill goes, um, any newbies, in my opinion, need to work those carries one, just to get comfortable with positioning and two, to start like loading the skeleton that way when they're working hard. And then the second would be, um, grip work. I know you all get to work on no matter how new you are, but working grip when it's not a perfectly dry scenario, you need to be getting those hands wet and muddy. You need to be getting cold. You need to be, cause those are like Spartan in OCR conditions. You never get those bluebird days when the bars are dry, I feel like. So, um, you honing in on like the compromise grip work, I say would be the, the, the places I would start with skill carries and compromise grip. Work. That'd be it. I have one final piece to this puzzle. Yeah. And that is actually doing it. And we've yeah. had comments on our posts and people say it in conversation all the time. I just have no motivation to work on my weakness and we can't help you with that. At the end of the day, it has to come from within. One of my big takeaways from Lindsay's interview was how she talked about Ryan being a machine. That he has no emotional attachment to his training. He just identifies what needs to be done and he does it because that's what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And that's why he's great. And I feel like I can preach at someone harshly and be like, I can't help you on that. You just have to be better at wanting it because that's also me, right? I've let things go for years. So I have the right to tell you be better at that because I know I need to be better at that. Mm -hmm. I'm not coming from this from a place of perfection my system is partially broken and I need to be better at just saying, it's not about whether or not I'm excited to work on my weaknesses. The weaknesses have to be addressed so that the machine works and that's it. Mm -hmm. There is nothing else. It's dispassionate. It's if I want to win, I must do this. If I want to accomplish my goal, I must do this. And if I'm not willing to, then I'm not that serious about accomplishing my goal. But if you're not that serious about accomplishing your goal, you're not listening to this podcast. I think there's people who are, who are, they're deceiving themselves like I was. They think they want this or they think they're committed or they think, but they actually are only going halfway. Yep. And these are the people that really need this. They're the people that need to reassess and say, I was half-assing it. And I can admit that now and I'm going to be better about it, but I'm not going to look for some external source of magic motivation. Remember, if you can't do it without it, you can't do it with it. So you just have to decide either I'm going to embrace the fact that I'm half in, half out, or I'm going to go all in and say I'm in, but identify who you are and then be okay with it. And if you're not okay with it, then that's why you train it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a personal trainer and I deal with this a lot. A lot of people will hire me thinking that my ex, the external motivation they get for me is what's going to keep their, you know, foot to the flame. And every single person that comes in looking to me for their sole source of motivation that has none themselves uh, fail every time. They're the one who six weeks or six months in start missing appointments, start gaining weight back, 
all because they haven't they haven't taken ownership. They put the ownership in my hands. I give you the framework as a coach. You create the framework as by building a training plan, but it, you have to carry through. Like ultimately, it all falls on your shoulders. All of it falls on your shoulders. Every single thing falls on your shoulders. And and motivation, as I've said on this podcast before, doesn't come like upon you magically and then you start it. No, you have to dreadfully go through things you don't want to do. And slowly you build moment, momentum, which then creates motivation. So really the act is just like sucking it up, ripping the Band-Aid off and scheduling your first workout that is working your weakness and not letting anything get in the way of that. And once you do that enough, which you could even be within a span of weeks, suddenly you're motivated to go see how fast you can carry that bucket. You're motivated to see what those 10% intervals can turn into this week, even though they suck the first two weeks. And pretty soon it's just there. But like the motivation isn't just going to come to you to work your weaknesses. And that's just like such an important piece for people to know because mm-hmm. I think so many people just wait for that light bulb to go on over their head like, aha, the day has come and now I can't wait to do the thing I hate. Like that doesn't happen. No. It's, it's just a good message, I think. And New Year's is approaching. And that's that giant carrot dangling there like this. Get out of jail free pass that, you know what, in 2021, oh, I'm just going to get after it. No, you're not. Because the first is the same as the 31st. It's just more depressing when you're still not doing it. Mm-hmm. Nothing's going to change. When we were teaching, when I was teaching, when Lisa was teaching, all the teachers talk about the same issue in the break room or after hours. And it's that no matter what we do for these eight hours, they spend the other 16 in their home environment. Mm -hmm. And we cannot control that environment. And it's so unfair for the student that they can just be so committed here and they want to do it right and they absorb everything here. And then they go home and they have twice the amount of time for someone else to screw it up for them. And then the next day we're undoing what happened in their home life. Yep. The beautiful thing here is that you are your home life. You're not a student. You're not a child. You're an adult here. You get to create your home life. So when you leave your coach or your trainer or the podcast or your gym buddies, you get to go home to the atmosphere that you choose. We're not trapped in that anymore. We're all adults Mm -hmm. and we get to decide this is now an atmosphere of success or of motivation. And if it's not, it's on you most of the time. If you're in an abusive relationship, if you're in a toxic home life, then that's a whole nother conversation. But outside of something like that, we get to dictate where we stand when we leave the safe confines of the gym. Mm-hmm. And, and that's so important to realize that just because we're still stuck in that mindset of maybe a victim or maybe I'm at odds with whatever's happening. No, not anymore. You can just decide, nope, my home life is now one that supports the mission that happens at the gym or with the trainer. And until you make that Ryan Atkins mindset adjustment, you're still going to still be in that victim mentality. I like that. You're just giving it to him straight today, Bracken. I like this. That's the Kirk role normally, Bracken. It is, but it's near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. I, I can't even tell you how embarrassing it is to watch these old Spartan rewinds. And to know that you are not that person anymore. Yeah, I watched the look on my face during races, and this is definitely me living in the past. Like I, I'll take a little bit of flack for, oh, you're still living in 2016. Like, damn right I'm living in 2016 because 2017 through 2019 blew. Mm-hmm. I'm not proud of that person. I'm not going to live in 27 and 2019. I'm going to live in 2014, 15, 16 and take that and translate it to 2020 and 2021. Mm-hmm. I understand how that shift happens in life really precariously. Like that is a slippery slope. As soon as you lose footing, you stop being the person you were. 
But I also understand that we have the full reins of our life to take it back and do it correctly. And so I'm fired up about it right now. And I want people to join me on that. And are you doing all in your possibility to change those things right now, Brad? No, I'm not. Are you on your way? I'm doing much better than I was, but I have a lot of room for improvement. And so I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to everyone else out there. So like this soapbox, this is a legitimate platform. (laughs) Take it for what it's worth and use it. Uh, I like it, Bracken. Um, I think the main things we want to get across today was how to identify your weaknesses, right? Go back to the beginning. Well, no, but just to remind, so that's, that was the gist of it. We could have made this a five-minute podcast where we said, identify your weaknesses by these four rules, make your list, and then get them into your training plan. But all the auxiliary stuff is important. It is. And so I'm glad you talked about it. It just, it struck me too much. All this introspection I've done over the past months has struck me too much that like all's well and good to make these great eloquent lists and the right things on your whiteboard. But if deep down, you know, you're still the same person that's going to still forget mm-hmm. about the whiteboard, then it doesn't matter. And you can only, and, I, and this client of mine is going to know exactly who she is. You can only write about it and talk about it and think about it so much before it all becomes bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know what happens? You just have to do it. Nothing else matters. You can get whimsical. You can get internal. You can overanalyze. You can do all of those things that are exhausting, but get you nowhere. Or you can just fucking do it. That's it. That's it. I made a pact. I told Lisa, I'm so sick of explaining myself in interviews or podcasts about what I'm about to do. Exactly. It's no longer like, who cares? No one wants to hear anymore. Well, this is going to be my return to form. Like, no, I'm going to show up on race day and it's going to happen or it's not, but no one cares. In fact, they're probably sick of hearing how I had a (laughs) string of injuries. Like that's not it anymore. You can only say it so many times before you're a liar and it's a pattern. And now Mm -hmm. you are the excuse maker or the predictor. You're no longer the doer. So we're just in doing mode. We can talk about what we're currently doing. I can talk about this is the change I'm making and this is why, but you will not hear a race prediction out of me. You just won't because no one wants that anymore. They want results. I like it. I want to add one thing to the end of this podcast. We got a message from Matt B. Davis the other morning. Okay. Remember what that was about? There were many things in there. Well, I made a post on Friday. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I mean, I just wanted to address it. So I made a post, a lighthearted post about not being a wimp and getting out and running in the winter, running in the dark. Apparently, there was a back-end conversation from some women on a Discord. I think that the ORM Discord that really, really disapproved of my playful yet stern post, saying that I didn't understand, you know, it's not safe for women to run, okay, outside. So I didn't get much flack myself, but I guess there was a whole back conversation. And Matt B. Davis was ribbing us about getting canceled and losing our fan base and all this. Just know there was no ill intent behind that. That was more of a playful, like, kirk to get your butt out the door and do something good for yourself. If you don't feel safe, you absolutely are not a wuss. You should not go run outside if you do not feel safe or have a safe environment. I just wanted to clear the air for anybody listening that didn't like that, uh, that I said that. And that's it. Proud of you, Kirk. And I'm disappointed in us. Why? Because how pathetic is it that we're at a place where a woman's not comfortable exercising? I know. Isn't that terrible? It's pathetic. It really is. And they're, they're, they're justified. They're 100%. This isn't me saying, oh, you don't feel comfortable. It's... What is wrong with men that women can't exercise outside? It's terrible. It is pathetic. Mm-hmm. But it is, I'll be honest, it's something when I just put that post out there, um, and it was more of like a gone rogue, like get stuff done type post. Like 
and, and that's the privilege that the privilege I'm going to say that we have is that that take on it was just a small fraction in the back of my head that I thought somebody might think that because of the privilege we have as, mm-hmm. as men to get up and put our headlamps on and run outside and not have to worry. Um, and that was just ignorance on my behalf. And so to you women, send me a message. We'll chat about it, but I'm sorry. That's it. What else do you want to add? We're just going right into the music. Thank you.